Uh, Well, good evening. Let me invite you to take out your Bibles and turn them open to Mark chapter 14. My name is Andrew, and I serve as one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of walking us through our passage this evening. And as many of you know, my wife, Kim, and I have three kids. We have two girls and a boy. Uh, One of our little girls is six years old. The other is one-year-old and sliding into the middle of my two-year-old son. And over the past week or so, I've been thinking about my daughter, and I've been, thinking, I've been asking myself the question, what types of role models do I want uh, my daughters to have? What qualities should I look for when pursuing role models for Delaney and Adeline? And that question drove me online, and I found on the website a, a popular parenting website that listed out the seven Uh, what they believe to be the top seven role models, uh, female role models for women, according to this website, uh, that our culture and our society look to for various reasons. And just to give you the list so you can have an idea as to who uh, made that list on this particular list, there's a bunch of lists, this is just one of them, and and coming in at number seven was Abby Douglas. Uh, Many of you perhaps know Abby Douglas as the gold medalist, uh, the gold medal gymnast for the U.S. women's Olympic team. Uh, Coming in at number six, is a young lady named Emma Watson, otherwise known as Hermione Granger, right? Uh, I don't think she made this list because of that. I think she's made that list for her work with the UN and some of the things that she's doing nowadays. Coming in at number five is the big O, Oprah Winfrey. And uh, Oprah made made the list number five, the popular talk show host and, and all kinds of things that she's into. And then just coming in after her would be Ellen DeGeneres, another talk show host hailing from New Orleans, Louisiana. That's where she's originally from and some ground that my wife and I used to live in and run around through and all those good things. Then number three, you have a young lady. I didn't know who this was at first, but her name was Miranda Cosgrove. I think that's how you say it. Anybody know who she is? Yeah. Yeah. iCarly, right? Yeah. I had to look that up. I wasn't familiar with iCarly, but this, that's who she is. And then number two, this might surprise us because uh, you would guess maybe this would be number one, but number two is Hillary Clinton. Everybody's quite familiar with her nowadays and all the things that have been happening for a long time in her political career, but Hillary Clinton comes in at number two. And then number one on the list, any guess, anybody know who this group said was the number one most, uh, the highest rated role model for women in our culture? Beyonce? No, not quite. This surprised me too. It was Jennifer Lawrence. Jennifer Lawrence, the Oscar-winning actress, was listed at number one on this list. Now, this is a diverse group, and, and of course, they're very talented, a group of very talented, very accomplished women. Uh, they're esteemed highly for their work ethic, for their ambitions, for their skills, for their successes. They're reasons why people look up to these ladies and see them as role models. Now, I share that with you because one of my favorite things about the Gospel of Mark, one of the, my favorite features about this Gospel that we've been journeying in, journeying through this entire year, is how Mark presents us with an exemplary list of female role models. I love the way that this gospel champions the dignity of women uh, in ways that was quite uncommon and quite countercultural to the first century Jewish world. As we've been journeying through this book, we've seen about 22 references to women, and 15 of those have come in unusually positive contexts, incredibly positive contexts. One scholar would describe it this way. He said, in special instances, women play prominent roles, even preeminent roles, receiving the highest praise that Jesus gives in the gospel. 
On two occasions, women appear uh, as the ideal of faith and devotion. He says the woman with a hemorrhage found in Mark chapter 5 is a model of faith for Jairus, who was the synagogue president at that time. Then he points out the Syrophoenician woman, who is a model of faith for all outsiders, found in Mark chapter 7. Then in Mark chapter 12, we read the story of the widow in the temple who was praised for giving more than everyone else she gave of her whole life, according to chapter 12, verse 42. And then above all, according to this scholar, above all, the anointing at Bethany, the story we're looking at tonight, the anointing at Bethany is so exemplary that the proclamation of the gospel in the world is a commemoration of her act. You see, I love the gospel of Mark because the women presented in this gospel, they are known for the deepest and most desirable qualities of faith in Jesus, of devotion to Jesus, of the fact that they were being changed by Jesus, and they were known for their adoration for Jesus. And I want to think about my daughters. I want you to know that those are the qualities I want my daughters to imitate. Those are the qualities that I want my daughters to aspire to, but I would go even further. Those are the qualities that I want my son Asher to imitate. Those are the ones that I want to mark out his life. In fact, when you read through the Gospel of Mark and you step into a passage like Mark chapter 14, you're going to see that these women are not just examples for women. These women are presented in this Gospel as examples for every person on the planet. Every person on the planet, regardless of Age, regardless of gender, regardless of race, regardless of class, these women are presented as examples for us to imitate in many ways. And the woman that we're introduced here in Mark chapter 14 is exemplary in how she regards what we might describe as the worth of Christ. This is a woman who esteems Jesus, who adores Jesus. She's ascribing worth to Jesus. And her story is kind of like a diamond in the rough. When you read verses 1 through 11, you, you find her story just occupying that central section of this beautiful act that she's showing, this incredible devotion she's giving to Jesus, but it's nestled between passages that speak of hostility and speak of betrayal. So this is very much a diamond in the rough kind of story. And even when you get into the meat of her story and the actual telling of what she does in the house of Simon the leper, you begin to see that there are still those even very close to the situation who belittle her response to Jesus, who downgrade her response to Jesus. And, and I put that before you because as we journey through the passage tonight, we're going to find four assessments of the worth of Jesus and and the responses that these assessments call for. You're going to see four groups of people. They all know about Jesus, or they're all close to Jesus, they're aware of Jesus, but they all respond to him in four completely days, four completely different ways, all rooted in their perception of Jesus' worth and their assessment of Christ. So you pick up the beginning of verse one, verse one of chapter 14. We read in this chapter that it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So we've come uh, basically right smack dab in the middle of what's called Holy Week or Passion Week in Jerusalem. The highest, most festive uh, week in the Jewish calendar was happening and they're right in the middle of it. It's probably a Wednesday and they're looking forward to Friday, which is the day where everyone is making their offerings and the sacrifice of atonement. The Passover lamb is offered up to God on behalf of the people and that is also when Jesus 
will be crucified, and we'll see more about that as we press on. So at this point in time, uh, the city of Jerusalem and Bethany, which lays right outside Jerusalem, it's packed with people. People are all over the place, and we're told that in that moment, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus, and it says that they wanted to do so by stealth. They wanted to be sneaky about it, and they wanted to kill him. They wanted to arrest him and kill him, but it says they couldn't do it during the feast. They were having a hard time finding an opportunity to do so because they didn't want to cause an uproar in Jerusalem. Jesus still had popular appeal among the masses, and so they had to be shrewd about how they approached that desire. They had to kill Jesus and, uh, in, this, in this moment. And so the first assessment that I want to point out is found right there in how the chief priests and the scribes are responding to Jesus. And this is a group of people, understand that this is a group of people who viewed Jesus as a liability. They viewed Jesus as a liability, so they said, we need to kill him. He's a liability, let's kill him. That's their assessment of the worth of Christ. And we've seen this coming all through the Gospel of Mark as their opposition and their hostility towards Jesus has been growing, and it's been growing almost at the same rate as Jesus' popularity has been growing. People are believing in Jesus. People are trusting in Jesus. People are giving their lives to Jesus, drawing the conclusion that he is the Christ, the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. And that conclusion has unsettled the religious leaders. That has knocked them off their game so that they're angry at Jesus. They want to kill Jesus. They view him as a liability. They want to kill him. And the reason they view Jesus as a liability is because Jesus represented a threat to their security, a threat to their stability, and a threat to their influence in the first century Jewish world. We discover this in John chapter 11, where we're told about their motivation. John chapter 11, verse 48, it says, if we let Jesus go on like this, these are the religious leaders talking, if we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and they'll take away, get this, both our place, that is our status, our position in society, and our nation. If Jesus continues growing in influence, we will become irrelevant. You know, that tends to be the response religion always gives to Jesus. Jesus renders religion irrelevant because Jesus says that a person's worth and a value and salvation is dependent not upon the things that they do and how well they do them, but upon what Jesus lives for, upon what Jesus dies for, and upon what Jesus rose from the grave for. And so he's a threat to their religion. They don't see him as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. They see him as antithetical to everything that they've been banking their lives upon. So Jesus is a liability and they want to kill him. You see, the religious leaders in this story, they're not responding to Jesus the way John the Baptist responded to Jesus. Do you remember what John the Baptist said at the beginning of this gospel? John the Baptist said of Jesus, this one who is coming, he must increase, I must decrease. This is what the religious leaders were unwilling to say. They refused to decrease so that Jesus might increase. And I wonder if that same temptation is dwelling in your hearts this evening. I wonder if there's a refusal within you to decrease so that Jesus might increase. I'm wondering if you view Jesus as a liability, 
as a threat to your perceived status, to your perceived stability, to your perceived self-worth, to your perceived achievements and accomplishments? Do you see Jesus as a liability? If so, you might be thinking, well, I can't physically kill Jesus, so how do I respond? How do I treat Jesus like a liability? Well, it's true that you and I, if we view Jesus as a liability, as a threat to our lives because he says things about us that are true but we don't like, and so we view him as liable when that happens. When we begin to see him in that way, you're right, we we can't physically kill Jesus like these guys would eventually do, but we can theologically kill Jesus. We can curb our portraits and our understanding of who Jesus is to fit in with uh, something that wouldn't be as um, intimidating to our flesh or intimidating to the lives that we've been leading up to this point. You see, we might not be able to kill Jesus physically, but we can kill him theologically by not talking about all the things that Jesus talks about in the gospel. We can become the types of people who want to champion things like Jesus' care for the poor, which Jesus certainly cared for the poor. And like him, we care for the poor. But we can make that the main thing to the reduction of the necessity of his crucifixion on the cross. And we begin to champion one aspect of his teaching to the neglect of the other. And we do that anytime we view anything that Jesus says or does as a liability, as a threat to us, and so we want to kill it. We just want to squash it. And I'm wondering if there's aspects of Jesus' life, of his ministry, of his teaching, of the things that he emphasizes in the gospel that you find hard to square with your preferences and opinions. And I'm wondering if you're willing to decrease in that so that the Savior might increase. I'm wondering if you view the word Jesus as worthy of your death to those types of things. You see, what tends to happen when we read through the Gospels and we begin to really listen to what the types of things that Jesus says and we begin to see the types of things that Jesus does, uh, usually if we, if we hear things and we see things and we don't like them, we, we, achieve, we treat the portrait of Jesus in the Gospels like our Instagram photos. And we just apply the right filter to Jesus so that we might present him a certain way that is less intimidating or a certain way that is less controversial or a certain way that is less a threat to uh, our perceptions and our opinions and our preferences. And we do that. We, when we do that, we are acting in the same spirit as the chief priests and the scribes who viewed Jesus as a liability and sought to kill him. So you have this, that's one category here. You have those who view Jesus as a liability and want to kill him. But then you move on. Actually, drop down to verse 10 because this is where we find the second one. Because there was also a a guy in the story referred to in verse 10 as as Judas Iscariot. His name, you don't name your kids Judas nowadays. And and most likely you don't for because his name does not carry the most positive connotations. It would be like naming your daughter Jezebel. You don't do that either. Uh, Verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, this is one of the disciples, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is one of the saddest moments in the entire gospel. But Judas's actions in this moment is a little different. But they do, he does show us something about how Jesus' worth is assessed and how our hearts tend to assess the worth of Jesus. Jesus Judas isn't necessarily viewing Jesus as a liability that he wants to kill. Instead, it seems as though Je- Judas is viewing Jesus as marketable, as sellable. 
He says, Jesus is marketable, so let's sell him. He goes to the religious leaders to sell Jesus, to betray Jesus, to find some way to cooperate with their stealth, with their scheming, with their conniving. He's going to the religious leaders to do something egregious. Now, what's significant about this moment is that Judas is doing this voluntarily. It seems as though Judas is taking it upon himself and going to these guys in order to betray Jesus. He's employing his faculties. He's using his mind. He's using his life to go to these guys and find some way to betray Jesus. And that's scary because Judas is one of, one of the 12. He's one of the insiders. He's one of the guys who's had more advantages than most of anyone else because of his proximity to Jesus. He's been walking closely with Jesus. He's been used by Jesus to advance the kingdom of God in the world. Do you remember the story when Jesus multiplies the bread and the fish and he feeds the 5,000? We're told that the disciples were the ones who passed out the food, who participated in that miracle. Judas was one of those guys. And yet here in this moment, Judas is the one who's moving in this direction to betray Jesus. Something in Judas's heart says, this Jesus is marketable. I want to sell him. I want to turn him over to these officials. Now, there are a lot of thoughts on what motivated Judas in this moment. There are a lot of opinions and scholars talk about what, what drove Judas to do so and they, they read other passages and other, and other gospels that does, do kind of round out the picture. There is a moment in Luke chapter 22 where we are told that Satan actually entered Jesus. Um, Judas, not Jesus. Satan actually entered Judas. That he was under some type of evil influence by the enemy when he did this. But then we're also told in Acts chapter 4 that Everything that Judas does, he does according to the sovereign foreknowledge of God. And so different passages, some say, well, Satan made G Judas did it. Others say, well, God uh, saw it all going down, and it seems as though God planned it all from the beginning. But here in Mark's gospel, you've got to note the simplicity. The simplicity of Mark's gospel, he puts it squarely on Judas's volition. But you might ask, well, who's really at fault here? Was it Satan? Was it God? Or was it Judas? And there's a sense in which we can say, yes, all of it. You might think, well, my mind can't really comprehend that. That's okay. You're not God. You don't have to iron that out. You don't have to figure that out. But you read the passage that you're dealing with, and you glean what you're to glean from that passage. And what Mark is emphasizing in this moment is the simplicity of Judas's complicity, that he goes to the chief priests and he looks for a way to betray Jesus, to turn him over to the officials who would kill him. And he's using his faculties. He's seeking out a way. This is one of the saddest lines in all of the gospel. It says that Judas sought an opportunity to betray him. I know, I know we live in a context and a culture that is reticent to apply moral blame to anyone. We don't like applying moral blame to people. We'd rather blame genes, not blue genes, but DNA genes. We'd rather blame that type of thing. or We'd rather blame 
other people or family upbringing or apply some disorder to a person's behaviors or actions. We're not quick to describe sin as sin and we're not quick to place culpability in the lap of those who are truly culpable. We may even find ways to blame the devil or to blame God for different things, but understand, mark the simplicity of this text. Who's at fault for this? Judas is. Now, there are other factors at play as well, but ultimately, Judas is responsible for what he does in this moment. He views Jesus as marketable, and he goes to the religious leaders, and they promise to give him money. He sells Jesus. Now, we're told in one of the other Gospels that Judas received about 30 pieces of silver. That's not a lot of money. But that's what he believed Jesus was worth. He sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And I'm wondering if there is an aspect in some of our hearts where we view Jesus as marketable, where we, where we say in our heart of hearts, you know, let, let, let's sell Jesus. Let's sell Jesus for 30 minutes of sex, illegitimate sex. Let's, serve, let's sell Jesus by wasting hours online viewing pornography that degrade and devalue the women that God loves and cherishes and created in his image. Let's sell Jesus for, so that our, we may be elevated in the eyes of our employer, even if that means cutting corners and operating in a way that lacks integrity. Let's sell Jesus for this. Let's sell Jesus for that. Let's sell Jesus. And the problem with that is that any time you and I sell Jesus We never get back what we give up. Hebrews chapter 11 describes the pleasures of sin as fleeting. He says, the pleasure that sin brings to a person's life, whatever you you think you gain when you give yourself intentionally to sin, it's fleeting. It's a flash in the pan. You never get back what you give up when you sell Jesus for those types of things. I find it interesting that earlier in this gospel, Mark chapter 8, Jesus would even warn those who were listening to his teaching about doing that with their lives. He says, what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Will you sell Jesus to gain the world in which you live? Or will you forsake the world in which you live to gain Jesus? Will you... Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus, seeing and assessing the worth of Jesus as the one who deserves your life, your all, your devotion. Judas in this moment sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver and he seeks this opportunity to betray him and he does it in a way by employing his faculties. And do you realize any time that we kind of go that route, Anytime our hearts say Jesus is marketable, I'm going to sell him for this, I'm going to sell him for that. Usually when we sin, we we don't do so haphazardly. Usually when we do so, we do so intentionally. We employ our God-given faculties in our pursuit of sin and our desire to betray and to sell Jesus. It takes intention for you to type in that website and to hit enter. You are seeking something in that moment. And you might not say you're seeking to betray Jesus, but that's what your heart is saying because your heart is saying Jesus isn't worth more than that. 
We are seeking opportunities to betray Jesus when you pull into the parking lot of one of those coffee shops in our area and you pull up to the window to get a cup of coffee only to feast your eyes on an image that is unbecoming of anyone created in the image of God, one that causes your heart to do things that God does not desire your heart to do. Be careful that you are not employing your faculties in your betrayal of Jesus, selling him for cheap pleasures in this world. Judas gave up everything for 30 pieces of silver. He gave it all up. And things don't end well for Judas. His life spirals downward after this moment. He ends up committing suicide because he can't bear the guilt and the shame that he feels for betraying Jesus in this way. Now you might say, well, maybe Judas thought he was forcing Jesus' hand to become that political Messiah that everyone wants. It doesn't matter. Even if that is what he wanted, he still betrayed Jesus and he still misunderstood the purpose for which Jesus came, which this woman seems to get because the woman in this text, Jesus says, is preparing Jesus for burial. She's anointing him for his crucifixion that will take place a couple of days later. And so some of us see Jesus as a liability we want to kill. Others of us see Jesus as marketable, so we want to sell him in various ways. And so we make sacrifices uh, to, for that to happen. And ultimately what this does is what you and I have to wrestle with each and every moment, each and every moment when we're tempted to sell Jesus for something cheap and fleeting, we have to think about this statement. Either Jesus will be, in every moment, either Jesus will be a sacrifice for us, or he will be sacrificed by us. And my prayer for each and every disciple in this room is that you would live the kind of life that isn't where you living in light of Jesus being a sacrifice for you so that you don't, so that he doesn't become a sacrifice by you in order to find something cheap. And so here, Judas is doing just that. But then there's a third assessment. This happens when you turn the corner in verse 3. Verse 3, you go back there, it says, And while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, uh, therefore this guy was maybe someone Jesus had, ch- had changed at some point in time. He had healed. He was a leper, most likely, at one point. But now that everybody's in the home, he's most likely no longer a leper. Jesus has probably changed his life, which is why everybody can congregate there. And it says, As Jesus was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves, this was the crowd, this was that third group. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? They began to complain that this woman was doing this type of thing. But notice the charge. Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. That's about a year's salary. And then that money could have been given to the poor. And so they scolded her. They scolded her, but Jesus says, leave her alone. You don't understand this moment. He says, leave her alone. You don't understand this moment. And so what we find in this third assessment in the way that this pro-Jesus crowd who's there to share a meal with Jesus, this negative reaction in verse four, this charge of being wasteful, we might summarize it this way. There are some who say, you know, Jesus is good, but but he's not good enough. Jesus is measurable, so let's not give too much to him. 
Jesus is measurable. Don't give too much to him. You can give some to Jesus, but don't give too much to him. This was their charge. This woman was wasting not just one denarius, which is about a day's wage. It's what you made on Friday. He, she says this is about 300 denarii. This is about a year's salary. Their, their thinking was now wasted upon Jesus. Now understand that their objection in this moment wasn't necessarily to the act. What they objected to was its extravagance. They were thinking this woman was giving too much to Jesus, doing too much for Jesus. Jesus then becomes measurable. He becomes quantifiable. He becomes measurable, and we are warned against giving too much to Jesus. Have you ever come across this in your discipleship? Have you ever come across this to the point where you're trying to do something with Jesus and for Jesus? You're trying to live a life of worship. You're trying to engage the mission of Jesus in the city of Seattle. And people are observing the way in which you live, the way in which you organize your schedule on a weekly basis or the way that you spend your money. And people see that and say, what are you wasting your life for? Why, why are you doing? I understand you like Jesus, but do you really have to do that? Do you really have to give so much to every Sunday you gather with other people to worship Jesus? Are you kidding me? Every week you're hanging with your missional community to study the scriptures or to fellowship with them or to serve your neighborhoods every single week? You mean to tell me you're going to give two weeks of your year in 2017 to go cross-culturally and to serve Jesus on mission in a place where the gospel is underserved or the people are underserved by the... You're going to give that much to Jesus? How often does this charge come up in our lives where people think Jesus, yeah, he's good, but he's measurable. Don't give too much to him. A guy by the name of James Edwards said this. He said, the world has never had a problem with religion in moderation. The world has never had a problem with religion in moderation. It has no problem with too much wealth or power or sex or influence, but it does have a problem with too much religion. You see, there are many people observing our lives as we seek to make much of Jesus in this city, and they might respect what we do, as long as we don't do it too much. In their minds, just a little dab of discipleship will do you. Just a little drop in Jesus' direction. Just a little love, a little faith, a little trust. Not your whole life. You don't want to always think about Jesus. You don't want to always engage the mission of Jesus. Just a little dab of discipleship. That'll do you. That will serve you well. And so they view this woman's act as as a waste, she's giving too much. But notice the charge. This is where things get a little funky. Because they charge this lady at, uh, with being neglectful. They say, look, you could have sold that jar and given it to the poor. They could have even played the Jesus card and said, you could have done that and Jesus would have liked that, right? Because he, he loves the poor. He's always telling us to care for the poor. You could have cared for the poor by selling that bottle of perfume and giving that money to those in need and they're playing that accusing her as of being neglectful now to be clear jesus does not condone you and i neglecting the poor he he's very clear about that we care for the poor we help the hurting that's what we do but notice what he says in verse 7 he says in response after saying leave her alone what she's done has been is a beautiful thing then in verse 7 he tells everyone, for you always have the poor with you. 
And in that moment, Jesus is applying the Old Testament. He's assuming something to be normative in the world that we live. He's alluding to Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, that says that we, as the people of God in the world that is, we have an ongoing responsibility to care for the poor. That's an ongoing need. There will always be poor to care for in the world that is. Jesus recognizes that. He affirms that. But in this moment, this woman had a unique opportunity to minister to Jesus. She had a unique opportunity to do something that should be commended and should be imitated. She had a unique opportunity to esteem the worth of Jesus at this pivotal juncture in his life and in his ministry. You see, ultimately, these guys who were complaining and being indignant in this moment, they might have cared for the poor. They might have not. I I don't know their motivation in this moment. But it does seem that they, in the very least, they're using the poor as a battering ram against this woman. How can you do that when there are people starving in Africa type of accusation? And this sometimes creeps up in our hearts, especially in the church today, where we say, well, you took a vacation to Disney World? How dare you spend money on something like that when there are poor people in the city of Seattle? You actually pay your church staff? Why why would you do that? Why don't you just give all of the money to helping the poor in this city? The poor are often used as a battering ram against, against disciples in a variety of ways. People who don't realize the ongoing nature of caring for the poor and the consistent responsibility that we have to do so. And we do so well, but we do so with a sober-mindedness. We do so with a sober-mindedness. And what's interesting about this moment, and here's what I really need you to think about. The irony of this moment is that Mary's gift to Jesus in this house was a gift to the poor. Her gift to Jesus was a gift to the poor. We know this because she is worshiping Jesus, who is the poor man par excellence. He is the one who gave up everything, who forsook glory, stepped into a life of poverty, wandered the Galilean world as a homeless rabbi, she is serving the poor in giving worth to Jesus. That's what's so ironic about this moment. This is why 2 Corinthians chapter 8 would tell us this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. You understand that if Jesus doesn't go to the cross, if he's not prepared for burial, the poor in the world, have no hope it doesn't matter how much money you give them it doesn't matter how many mouths you feed if Christ isn't crucified the poor have no hope the best way you and I can care for the poor is by caring for Jesus The best way you and I can help the hurting is by ascribing worth to Jesus. That means when we go to help the poor, we don't just throw money at them. That means we declare the gospel, which is what this woman 
what her act will commemorate. She is worshiping Jesus in a way that would adorn the gospel for every generation. This is what Jesus says at the end. I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, that is wherever the gospel is spoken, verbalized, articulated, in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This is a woman who's loving the poor by loving Jesus. How do you love the poor? Love Jesus. You are not loving the poor if you don't love Jesus. You are not helping the poor if you're not proclaiming the gospel. Now, we are a church who's both and in our ministry. We believe in caring for the poor and giving sacrificially towards those in need. But we also refuse to do that to the neglect of gospel proclamation. If we want to help the people in our city, we've got to see the worth of Jesus. That's what this woman is doing here. That's what Jesus commends her for, regardless of what the other people in the home are saying. Ultimately, their assessment of the situation is irrelevant. What matters in that moment is Jesus' assessment of this woman's devotion, of the way in which she is ascribing worth to Jesus. And this is what her assessment says. And this is the assessment that I want to grab our hearts in this space right now. An assessment that says, Jesus is priceless. Let's worship him. This is what she's saying. Jesus is priceless. Let's worship him. She's worshiping Jesus in a way that is worthy of Jesus. Understand that our worship of Jesus, Jesus deserves far more than a casual, moderate, cool worship time by us week in and week out. Jesus deserves far more than that. He deserves more than a casual worship, more than a dispassionate worship, more than a moderate worship. This is why our goal as a church is not simply to attend Gatherings like this a couple of times a month and then become reasonably good people. Our goal as a church is to be a community that passionately esteems the worth of Christ, that exalts Jesus above any other person, any other place, any other thing in our lives and in this world. That's the worth that Jesus deserves. That's the worth that this woman is declaring. Jesus is priceless. I'm going to give her, I'm going to give him what's most expensive to me. I'm going to give him what's most precious to me. I'm going to give him everything. This is what she's doing. She's worshiping Jesus with sacrificial generosity. She's taken this this jar of perfume and, and we're told how much it's worth. It's a year's salary and she's giving it to Jesus. This is a very practical, tangible form of worship. She's giving something expensive to Jesus. This would be like you and I giving money to things that Jesus is passionate about. That's why a guy by the name of Timothy Keller, you may have heard his name recently, Timothy Keller, pastor out of New York City, he would make this statement about this moment. He describes this passage. He says, the implication is that you and I can never give too much to Jesus. So this means we should lavish with our money when it comes to Christ and ministry. We cannot conclude from this passage that we should not have a savings account, but clearly a committed Christian will not accrue as much personal wealth as he or she would apart from faith, for a Christian gives generously to Christ's ministry. That's what she's doing. She's worshiping Jesus with sacrificial generosity. She's giving Jesus that which is the most most expensive artifact or heirloom in her possession. 
And this is the second time we've seen a woman worship Jesus in this kind of way. Earlier in Mark chapter 12, turn back there. You see another woman who worships Jesus with sacrificial generosity. The passage that Jeff took us through a few weeks ago. We're told in verse 42 that a poor widow came and put in two small, two small copper coins, which make a penny. So it wasn't a lot. And then Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. She gave as much as the woman in Mark chapter 14 did. She gave just as much, although it might seem smaller. She's worshiping Jesus with sacrificial generosity. And you and I, when we begin to view Jesus as priceless, when we begin to worship him, we will begin, yes, giving financially towards that which would advance and accentuate the gospel in the world. We will start prioritizing whether we consider ourselves rich or poor. It doesn't matter. We start giving to the cause of Christ in this world when we begin to see Jesus as priceless. But she goes further. It's not just about giving with a sacrificial generosity. She worships Jesus with extravagant devotion. Extravagant devotion. She gives Jesus her very best. This heirloom, this bottle of perfume was something she probably inherited. It was probably something that was passed on to her from her family. That's how a, a woman, it seems, in Bethany would have acquired something like that. And so she's worshiping Jesus with her very best. She's giving him extravagant devotion in this, in this story. You see, ultimately, the worth of any gift is determined by how much it costs the giver, the person giving it. That's why Jesus would commend the widow and he would commend this woman. Both were capable of worshiping Jesus with extravagant devotion. Both women went above and beyond in their worship of Jesus. Let me ask you, when was the last time you went above and beyond in your worship of Jesus? And I'm not just talking financially. When have you gone above and beyond in your worship of Jesus when you sought to serve your neighbor? when you sought to bless the city of Seattle? When have you gone above and beyond in your worship of Jesus? Or are you only approaching your discipleship with just a little dab will do you type of mentality? Just a little drop. This woman sees that Jesus is priceless as she worships with extravagant devotion. But then notice what else she does. She worships with a reckless abandon. A a reckless abandon. This is what's fascinating about this moment. It says that she took this flask and she broke it. She didn't just subtly and slowly anoint Jesus and prepare him for burial. It says that she broke it. She, She rendered that flask unusable again. It will never hold perfume again. She broke it and gave all of it to Jesus. This was reckless abandon. Now think about what that might mean for her. This was a woman whose security was wrapped up in the possession of this alabaster flask of ointment. This was a year's salary. For her to break it and give it to Jesus means she was sacrificing her future. She was putting her hope in Jesus. Saying, Jesus, I'm giving you my future. And that's what we do as disciples who see Jesus as priceless. We sacrifice our future. We give our hope to Jesus. We take up our crosses and follow him with reckless abandon. We put our hands to the plow and we move forward without looking back. That's the call of discipleship. That is how this woman is modeling an ideal faith and an ideal devotion and an ideal worship of Jesus. It's reckless abandon. No turning back for her in this moment. 
She's giving everything to Jesus. She is someone who understands Jesus is priceless. She is someone who's ascribing worth to Jesus, worshiping him with reckless abandon. And notice what happened. The onlookers in the room interpreted her actions as wasteful. Could your worship of Jesus ever be mistaken as wasteful? Is anyone ever reading your life that way? Has anyone ever read your life as wasteful because of the way in which you are recklessly abandoning all, forsaking your sin, forsaking anything that would hold you back from following Jesus, showing the world that Jesus is worth more to you than any other person, any other place, any other thing, any other possession? Are you living the kind of life that, that could be interpreted as wasteful? It would be a wonderful thing for people to look at your life and saying, you are wasting it because you were so devoted to Jesus. Because what the world considers to be wasteful, Jesus says, is beautiful. Beauty is in the eye of, be of the beholder. The onlookers in the room, that's a waste. She shouldn't do that. Jesus, that's beautiful. I love that you've come to me in this way. I love that you are seeing that I am who I am. I love that you are recognizing the significance of my crucifixion and that you're giving your hope to me. Are you living the kind of life that, would, that could be interpreted as wasteful by those who are watching? This is essentially what this passage is putting before us. Are we recognizing the worth of Jesus? Do we see him as priceless and are we worshiping him? Now I love this story for a lot of reasons. and The parallels between this moment and the gospel, the crucifixion of Christ are uncanny. Here you have an alabaster jar that was priceless, that was a, a very valuable thing. And this alabaster jar was crushed. It was poured out. All ascribing worth to Jesus. Why would she do that? Why would she see Jesus in that way? Why would you and I do that? Why would you and I break our jars and give our all to Jesus? Why would we bank our hope in him? Well, what, she, what Jesus says is being anticipated in this moment is what you and I look back on and we see is being actualized. She's doing it before Jesus, the most valuable person to ever walk the planet, would go to the cross and be crushed and poured out for the forgiveness of our sins and the salvation of our souls, she's doing it before then. You and I get to look back and we know that Jesus was crushed. We know that Jesus was poured out. We know that Jesus shed his his precious blood so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we might be made right with God, so that our hope could be secured in him, so that we could come to worship this Jesus who would do that type of thing. This woman is illustrating, embodying the gospel for everyone in the room. They don't see it, but we do. That's why Jesus' words at the end of this moment are being fulfilled in this moment. That's why what she does will be told in memory of her anytime the gospel is proclaimed. Right now, Jesus' words are being fulfilled because right now, the gospel is being proclaimed and we're thinking about her act, the worth that she ascribed to Jesus, and we're doing it in a way that, Lord willing, our hearts are melting in the same direction so that we would begin to see Jesus not as a liability, not as marketable, not as measurable, but we would see Jesus as priceless 
and we would become the types of men and women who worship him with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, with all, with all of our time, with all of our talents, with all of our treasure, that we would give Jesus the worship he alone deserves. Let me invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes because I'm gonna encourage you to think about some things in light of this picture. You know, I know there are some in this room who've yet to put their faith in Jesus. You've yet to see Jesus as worth as worthy, uh, worth your faith, worth your life. And so you're just kind of wandering through this world. You, you haven't really landed anywhere and so you're in a perpetual crisis mode or anxious mode or worrisome mode and, and you're wondering, is there really any person or anything worthy of your life? And The best argument for you becoming a Christian is Jesus. The reason why I want you to become a Christian is because Jesus I want you to know Jesus. I want you to see his worth. I want you to see his value. I want you to see his life and his death and his resurrection as worthy of your entire self. I want you to know that Jesus has given his entire self to you so that you might give your whole self to him. That's what we do as disciples. That's what we do as worshipers of Jesus. And so if you're not a follower of Christ, if you're not a believer in Jesus, let me encourage you to open up your heart, break your jar, And give yourself to Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus and you're wrestling with temptation, I want you to know, I want you to know that Jesus is ready and willing to forgive you of any and every sin you committed, even walking into this room tonight. You don't have to hold on to it. You don't have to live in guilt, fear, or shame because you've offended Jesus or betrayed Jesus in in an M-I-N-I many kind of way today. You can still approach Jesus and find him gracious, to find him merciful, and all that would do is just enhance your understanding of his worth, of his value, the fact that he loves you like crazy. He welcomes you in every moment of every day, so we draw near to him and we worship in light of his acceptance of us, knowing that all of our worship, everything we give to him is never a waste. We're not wasting our time. We're not wasting our lives. We're not wasting anything when we are worshiping Jesus. I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna do just that. We're gonna continue worshiping Jesus. Some of you are gonna come to the table and partake of the elements. You're gonna commemorate the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus by partaking in the Lord's Supper. Others of you are gonna ascribe worth to Jesus by joining Bryant and Albert in singing and song and Others of you may ascribe worth to Jesus by giving towards his cause, by worshiping through sacrificial generosity, the worship, the worship through giving box that's located in the back. You might take advantage of that and give towards that which would advance and accentuate the gospel of God in this world. Well, we're gonna move into a time and I'm gonna ask the Holy Spirit to move mightily among us so that our hearts would melt in light of Jesus' pricelessness so that we might worship him. God, I ask and pray that you would do that now. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work within us and around us to do the things that you desire to do in our lives. Let us come before you now and worship you in the way that you deserve and in the way that would ascribe worth to you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.